Today, I'm speaking with Dr. James Johnson. Dr. Johnson is an archaeologist specializing in the ancient Western Eurasian steppe. This is the belt of grasslands running from Eastern Europe to Kazakhstan, where horses were first domesticated, the wheel was first used in war chariots, and from which the Indo-European language family spread to cover two-thirds of the world. He's been working on the steppe for over a decade, with projects in the southern Urals region of the Russian Federation and east-central Ukraine. My name is Sebastian Weatherby, and without further ado, this is The Tell. You have a really, really impressive bookshelf. I, <laughs> I recognize a handful of these, but I need to take a, take a picture so I can go through and find some of these online. Well, anyway, hi, well, Jim. <laughs> I had, uh, so when I finished my master's, I sold half of my books off. So these are the, the ones that made the purge <laughs> <laughs> and kind of made it through the PhD program. And then, of course, yeah, there's a bunch. I mean, there are a bunch back at the house. Like I said, there's a bookshelf, a couple bookshelves that uh, are the academic stuff. And then there's all the other fantasy yeah. sci-fi. How did you get into the archaeology of the Pontic Steppe in particular? I can see, you know, I can see from your bookshelf that you really like European prehistory in general yeah. and um, ancient history. And like a lot of people who are history geeks, they'll they like the Romans, they like the Greeks, they maybe like the Celts or something. Um, but how did you go from there to the Bronze Age Steppe and the Iron Age Steppe? Yeah, so, um, well, the long answer is that I actually started off uh, being really interested in the Neolithic and early Bronze Age monuments mm -hmm. of Northwest Europe, mm -hmm. so the UK, Ireland, mm -hmm. and then I realized that, you know, because this was when I was making that transition from undergraduate to graduate, I just didn't have the money <laughs> to yeah. go to Europe a lot. Um, and that's when I actually met uh, Bettina Arnold, mm -hmm. Professor Bettina Arnold at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Uh, and she got me really interested in the Iron Age uh, and the Celtic Iron Age more yeah. specifically. Uh, so I was able to go to Germany with her, like right after doing my field school. And this was back in 2000. Um, three days later, I was on a plane to Germany to excavate burial mounds in southwest Germany. Uh, so... Yeah, there was that transition, and as I kind of progressed through the master's program at UW-Milwaukee yeah. with Professor Arnold, uh, I started to think more about Eastern Europe, because not many people uh, were interested in it at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, we all you know, had heard about like Scythians or Scythians, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Um and of course, their interactions with the Greeks, I think that it's almost mirrored by the Celtic interactions with the Greeks. Mm -hmm. um, so looking at that aspect of the Iron Age, uh, the Eastern European and Eurasian steppe, and again, like you just don't hear much about it. And I thought, well, here's a place where I could really make my mark, uh, help illuminate this aspect of prehistory. And I knew that it was going to mean, you know, learning Russian, learning Ukrainian. Uh, yeah, that's a that's two a languages order. not easy to master, and I certainly don't think that I've mastered them yet. Maybe in a decade or so, 
but that was really the lead-in, was the, you know, kind of getting all those other parts of European prehistory down and then going into an area that we just didn't know much about because no one speaks the language. Yeah. And so when I was looking at PhD programs, uh, it really came down to just a few. You know, and the University of Pittsburgh and working with uh, Professor Brian Hanks was, you know, pretty much a godsend because he has a project in Russia. You know, he's fairly well known yeah. in terms of yeah. the broader Eurasian step. And, you know, this was back in 2006. So he had just finished his Ph.D. at Cambridge. So, um, yeah, that was, you know, if you're going to work over there, you got to have someone uh, who already has a project there, who's already known you can't, it's yeah. not an easy place to just, to just wing up. it and yeah. find your own uh, permitting and exactly. contacts and everything. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is that, um, so especially in Ukraine, they expect that you're, you've mastered the material already. Yeah. What, the culture history, the archaeology, the ancient history, uh, all of that. So yeah. I began very slowly developing the project in Ukraine mm -hmm. uh, with my colleague, uh, Dr. Sergei McCortick at the Institute of Archaeology. Um, and that was the plan for the PhD, that I would focus on basically the Scythian Iron Age uh, in the Pontic Steppe. Yeah. But because we were having problems getting funding, Brian Hanks suggested that I do my PhD in Russia uh, on his project, which got me into the Bronze Age. And this ended up being much further east, right? So yeah, you're, much you're farther like east of the just Bronze of, Age Russian project is in the southern Urals. Yeah, so you're kind of near that gap between the Urals and the border of Kazakhstan then, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah so we're just under 40 miles away wow. from the Kazakh border. What did that project entail? Um, yeah, so at the time, uh, Brian Hanks was looking at metal production in uh, Middle Bronze Age and Tashta period communities. Mm -hmm. um, so he had just gotten his National Science Foundation grant, his first one. Um, so we had gone, he had gone in 2008 with a team I joined in 2009. Mm -hmm. uh, and we were excavating at the Sintashta period settlement of Stepnoya, mm -hmm. uh, looking at basically the level of craft production related to metallurgy, what, and to a certain extent, the effects. What's the scale of a settlement like that? So, Stepnoya is roughly, I want to say about 1.2 hectares, mm -hmm. uh, 1.5 maybe, Chernorechia. So there's two Sintashta settlements, Sintashta period settlements, yeah. in that river valley. They're about 20 kilometers apart. Um, Chernorechia is a little bit smaller. Bigger houses, but smaller. Do you have, are there population estimates? Is it pretty rough? Yeah, they're kind of all over the place. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it can go anywhere from 200 to 1,200 for Stepnoia, and Chernorechia yeah. is a bit smaller. It's a real town. Yeah, yeah. we're we're talking uh, real towns, not villages. Yeah. Um, and, of course, this, you know, we have to think in terms of the phases, the construction phases and occupational phases, mm -hmm. which there were at least two, maybe three, but yeah, we were excavating part of a house structure, a midden, mm -hmm. a well, and basically looking for furnaces to give us evidence of the metallurgy. And that metallurgy, is that 
is that creeping up from the Near East via, say, like the no. Caucasus Mountains? This is all kind of emerging organically? <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about, you know, when bronze is first being, and this is our cynical bronze being produced, mm -hmm. so really in the early Bronze Age, so anywhere between 3300 to 2500 or 2600 BC, uh, and then in the Middle Bronze Age, a little bit more intensive production. And this was kind of the dominant model, especially for the Sintashta period, because this is a, a cultural group and a time period where we're seeing lots of innovations. Yeah. So the first time that we see uh, permanent settlements on the steppe uh, is with the Sintashta culture. We see chariots and that, you know, this may play into later questions because it's such a big topic. Um, of course, horse domestication. Right. These, the, both of those came from the Eastern end of the steppe, right? Uh, to the degree that we can tell chariots and. Well, I mean, I don't want to say Eastern ends of really mm -hmm. anything Yeah. because the Southern Urals is kind of its own thing. Right. Yeah. It's not just a periphery yeah, of so another not, area. Yeah, yeah. Eastern or Western. It's yeah. Central. Yeah. Um, plus, I mean, the Ural Mountains is central to the Eurasian steppe. Yeah. We basically yeah. treat it as a dividing line. So west of it is, you know, basically from the Urals to Bulgaria. Yeah. And yeah. then to the east of it, the steppe runs from the southern Urals to basically northern Korea. Yeah. So, yeah, the southern Urals is really a, a place of innovation, technological and if not social innovation. And these things are just really starting to pick up kind of speed in terms of looking at chariots. And Sintasha culture, uh, from what we know, and based on the radiocarbon dating, um, we have the earliest examples of chariots. And by chariots, we mean spoke-wheeled, Right, as opposed to just carts. a wagon or yeah. a cart. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, horse domestication uh, probably was happening somewhere in there, probably a little bit earlier, maybe mm -hmm. at Botai. Um, so, yeah, that region is definitely, uh, there's some pretty special things going on. And urbanization is uh, taking place incrementally uh, over this period? Yeah, so urbanization or urbanism, um, this is kind of a tricky thing uh, because, well, one, we have to separate urbanization from urbanism. Mm -hmm. Urbanism being kind of uh, an urban way of life right? versus urbanization where uh, populations are becoming centralized mm -hmm. and growing, becoming denser. There are different takes on what's going on in the uh, Middle Bronze Age Sintashta period. Like, mm -hmm. is this proto-urbanism? Is this a proto-state? Yeah. Uh, how closely connected are they? Are these towns big enough? And this is, you know, a question that uh, my colleagues, uh, well, he just passed away, but uh, Gennady Zdanovich uh, was asking early on in the 90s, basically up to the point that he passed away just a year and a half ago. Uh, or like Andrei Epimakov, who's been asking about the demographics related to this. Um, so probably the safest thing to say about the Sintashta period and those settlements is that they're kind of nascent urbanism. Mm -hmm. um, because I think 
what I've often run into talking to other anthropological archaeologists is that they still don't think pastoralists are capable of urbanism, really in any form. Mm -hmm. So there's still that lingering impression that pastoral societies are They're complex. the periphery. They're yeah. sort of the, the barbaric yeah. Uh, yeah, prehistory, and it's just sort of a footnote to the historic period and other yeah. areas. Yeah, and usually the way we think of urbanism, we're almost trained to think mm -hmm. this way in terms of urbanization and urbanism, is that you know it's it's really a sign of the state, yeah, you know, either nascent states or developed states, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's happening in prehistory or historical times, um, and that's one of the things that uh, my colleague uh, Brian Miller and I have been trying to combat. So we're going to be publishing on this, and shortly we actually have a rough draft done now, looking at what we call pastoral urbanism. What what distinguishes pastoral urbanism? Well, basically, you have to take into account uh, mobility. Mm -hmm. That these sites may not be permanent. So that can we think of, let's say, tent cities, right, uh, or yurts, or you know, gares, uh, in a dense enough con uh, concentration? Mm -hmm. Of course, there has to be some sort of signature, archaeological signature that can be. Uh, picked up so post yeah. holes you know yeah. ceramics blah 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 uh the, the list goes on um you know how does that differ from our kind of normative way of thinking about urbanization yeah. and urbanism so in some ways it's more ephemeral or has the potential to be definitely so, yeah. definitely is that is it harder than uh excavating like a syntax to size is it difficult to to find the footprints of architectural features and things like that? Um, um, for the Sintashta, no, because we have uh, embankments that were that were probably treated as fortifications. We don't mm -hmm. know if for certain, and certainly I've had this uh, discussion with my kind of senior colleagues um, because they just interpret them like as a default that they're fortifications, but embankments can be any number of things. Yeah. Um, but these are things you could... But certainly we have the architectural kind of footprint. And these are things these you might towns. even see walking onto a site before it's excavated? Yes. Yeah. yeah. But the other uh, kind of side of this, or the other dimension, is uh, in 2011, I went out and did the, to the best of my knowledge, the first uh, regional pedestrian survey, systematic <laughs> pedestrian survey, uh, on the Russian steppe. So I know that my colleagues in Mongolia mm -hmm. had also been doing something similar uh, before that. Yeah. This is something that you had mentioned to me uh, a while ago, which completely blew my mind, that in Russia, pedestrian survey is not a very common or ordinary form of archaeological project. No, right? even now, uh, you know, and they're, after I finished... Uh, my PhD at the University of Pittsburgh. There was another student who did uh, a smaller survey. Yeah. But, you know, and again, turned up quite a bit. Um, and it's interesting because both surveys were extremely productive. Yeah. They identified things in the landscape that our Russian colleagues would never have found or didn't know about. Yeah. Uh, and certainly if we think about the historical conditioning involved in settlements like the Sintashta settlements, 
we have a better idea of what leads up to these things, whether it's migration or mm -hmm. local developments. Um, but yeah, and it, it's it's not uncommon that uh, regional pedestrian systematic survey isn't employed. It's not employed that often in Europe either. Really? Yeah. I mean, they do field walking, but um, there's just not a lot of survey happening unless it's usually American or, you know, a few British teams hmm. conducting it. So how good then is our understanding of, say, the, the distribution of Sintashta sites or uh, how that complex is laid out on the landscape? Do we just have a couple little islands of knowledge in the midst of a sea of ignorance or, or what? Well, no, I, I think we have a really good idea because um, besides uh, survey, yeah. you also have other kind of techniques or methods to getting at looking at landscapes. Mm -hmm. And what the Russians are, I think, particularly good at is aerial photography. Oh, interesting. And the analysis of it, and especially my co-director, Natasha Batanina, um, she spent a large part, portion of her career, along with her grandmother and her father, um, and they're kind of an archaeological dynasty in this part of Russia, and they really have focused on the analysis of aerial photography. So that uh, Natasha identified a 22nd or 23rd, uh, Sintasha settlement. Wow. And now she just found a, a rather large late Bronze Age settlement outside of my survey study area. So she and I are very interested in going to explore that, you know, through survey and excavation. Yeah. So, yeah, there's different ways of doing this. And we can be, I think, really confident in what they found. Mm -hmm. So we found, you know, the 20 plus uh, Sintasha settlements, you know, these kind of for, possibly fortified yeah. uh, settlements. And they really range in size, you know, anywhere from half a hectare up to, you know, three hectares or four hectares. So, you know, they're, some of them are fairly large and they have large cemeteries associated with them as well. Almost each, I think pretty much every settlement has a cemetery associated with it. It might be good at this point to... Uh ask, I think, uh, a question about what gave me the most trouble uh, doing the reading related to this interview, um, which is well, most of the books... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a feeling we're about to get to the culture. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so doing the reading for this interview, I found a really bewildering array of culture historical groups and complexes incredibly detailed chronologies with very, you know, uh, to my ear, not speaking any Russian or Ukrainian, very uh, complexes that are impossible to tell the difference between because they all have very long hyphenated Russian names and Ukrainian names. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's hard to get a mental map for exactly what's changing across the Bronze Age. Um, are there any, like, are there any broader schema that you like or shorthands that help you think of uh what say the difference between an early and middle bronze age site are characterized by yeah so pretty much i can delineate the 
Bronze Age altogether. So early, middle, late, final. Yeah. Uh, and the best way to think about that, um, without getting bogged down in too many specifics, is thinking about the changes to settlements. Mm-hmm. So with the early Bronze Age, we're generally talking that we don't have a lot of settlement information. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Freschetti has suggested that this is the time where mobile pastoralism is really coming into play. Um, and I completely agree. David Anthony is suggesting that uh, the groups in the early early, ugh, early Bronze Age yeah. are wagon dwellers. And so they're moving across the landscape. Yeah, this may or may not coincide with uh, domestication of the horse. These may be oxen pulled yeah, uh, or yeah. cattle pulled uh, wagons. So we don't have a lot of settlement information. In fact, most sites are characterized by the absence of permanent, what we would think and, of as permanent settlements. With the Middle Bronze Age, we basically see the... Uh, in, I would say middle, middle Bronze Age. Uh, so with the emergence of, you know, a couple of different cultural groups, including the Santasha, we begin to see more permanent settlements. Mm-hmm. Um, and the I think a, a dominant question right now is where they lived in year-round or where they utilized in, you know, Seasonal let's say, winters. Kind of yeah, yeah. Uh, because we know that, Overall, like the Potapovka and the Santashta are pastoralists. You know, they're, they have herds. The question is, what strategy are they using? Yeah. Are we talking about tethered, semi-tethered? Or, you know, like what Michael Freshetti has said, you know, mobile pastoralism, which is pretty much you're on the move. Um, certainly with Santashta, we would say it's either tethered or semi-tethered. And interestingly enough, in the Southern Urals, they still have this kind of pastoralism where basically, yeah, um, in the morning you bring your uh, cattle out to a corral yeah, and there are uh, a herder or two and they take them out for the day and then they bring them in uh, usually around 5 or 6 p.m. And then you come and get your cattle and bring them back. So each house has, you know, two or three cows. Yeah. Uh, and then the sheep and goats are herded within the settlement, like this uh, modern settlement mm-hmm. uh, village or town of Stepnoya. You can see them, the kind of livestock, the other livestock wandering around <laughs> in herds. And usually they have dogs herding them. You don't need humans. Yeah, they'll do it all. Yeah, yeah, they've got this little yippy dog that (laughs) runs around by the sheep, especially, and it herds them around the outskirts of town. From the Neolithic through the Bronze Age, there's this sense, um, at least that I grew up with reading history, that nothing interesting was happening outside of the Near East in Mm. these time periods, that it was just sort of a giant blank map of prehistory, and... Meanwhile, all the big cities and all the all the innovations and development are taking place in Mesopotamia, in Anatolia, yeah, um, yeah, in the Levant, um, and doing some of the reading for this interview has really been blowing my mind just in terms of the scale of some of the Neolithic communities in Eastern Europe and Ukraine and Moldova and 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 
yeah, going all the way east to Sintashto with it being this emergent points for such transformative technologies. It seems mm -hmm. like uh, it's really flipped my image of the region on its head for this period. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I was really lucky, um, I think, in terms of meeting Bettina Arnold when I did, because uh, working with her on kind of these, you know, European Iron Age, you know, quote unquote Celtic uh, developments, massive hill forts and cities appearing. You know, we have such a better understanding now of these developments than we did uh, when I first started out twenty two years ago yeah. um you know the we were working uh in cemetery you know buried tumulus cemeteries that were considered hinterland you know they're four or five six kilometers away from the major site of the horneberg that really got my mind spinning in terms of what are the expectations for things out east yeah you know, in ukraine in russia yeah in kazakhstan I think so many people are trained to think that uh, civilization happens in the cradles. Right. Yeah, you know, Mesopotamia, yeah. Uh, China, uh, and of course other parts of the world, but yeah. we don't often think about those the societies stuff is that. Off the edge of the map. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Back then, we were really struggling against this idea that pastoralists could be complex. And I think Brian and Kathy did such a great service to pastoral archaeology in general, uh, basically taking that head on, taking that challenge head on, and gathering prominent scholars from around the world to say, pastoralists are their own thing. They're not necessarily peripheral. They're not yeah. necessarily um, uh, subject to you know, basically agrarian states. They have their own developments. And in fact, they're uh, introducing things to these agrarian states. Which, honestly, shouldn't really be a surprising point, right, given the role of pastoral peoples historically as the the, the prototypical outside threat, uh, the great thorn in the side of these settled societies, from the Scythians and the Xiongnu to the Huns and the Mongols. Um, yeah, I mean, that, I think, develops later on, because mm -hmm. I think there's a more... Uh, almost symbiotic relationship between pastoralists and agrarian societies. I don't want to say states, but societies yeah. in general. Um, because it's, you know, as things progress, pastoralists definitely become uh, a bit more territorial. Uh, and certainly by uh, 8,100, um, or e we could even say 8,400 with the Huns. Yeah. Uh, Pastoralists have become a dominant force in terms of world prehistory. Yeah. And it's amazing how many times I still hear, uh, you know, people refer to, oh, Rome was the biggest empire, you know, the largest empire and most impactful empire. And I'm like, no, <laughs> that was the Mongols. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. There's no question. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, and then thinking about the Han Empire uh, there's still a lot of debate going on um, about the possibility of the Scythians being an empire or a state-level mm -hmm. society. Uh, certainly, colleagues of mine go back and forth. Uh, I'm pretty open to the idea that it's possible. Yeah. The problem is how we define empire and state. 
usually you have to have a system of writing. But right. this a... gets us into talking about kind of relativity. And um, the simple fact is we know that, you know, pastoralists are capable. Yeah. Uh, so we have to think about the possibility of it. And, um, you know, we're, like I said, we're finding out more every day. Uh, more archaeological projects are happening. More surveys are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the more we find out, I think the, I guess, more plausible the idea is that uh, maybe the Scythians were empire state level. Well, and uh, here here's another topic I wanted to ask about. If, if we're talking about the steppe's contribution to the world, then... There's the subject of the Indo-European language family and the fact that, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it likely originated on the steppe. Um, and that'd be the source of French, Spanish, Latin, Hindi, Russian, the English we're using to make this podcast, um, at least according to the Kurgan hypothesis, right? And, and by the way, for our audience, uh, the name Kurgan hypothesis just refers to iconic uh, burial mounds found on the steppe. Well, um... um. I wouldn't say it's necessarily the the Kurgan hypothesis anymore. I think that's a related uh-huh. uh, factor. So thinking about Gimbutas's Kurgan hypothesis, which mm-hmm. I think in the 80s and 90s a lot of people were agreeing with, mm-hmm. but I think we've kind of uh, separated, bifurcated the two between the Kurgan hypothesis and uh, Proto-Indo-European in the Pontic-Caspian steppe okay. area. Yeah. So... Uh, Anatolian is still one of those competing hypotheses, though. First suggested by Colin Renfrew. Renfrew, yeah. Who, and, Wait, I think he was the first one to kind of systematize, okay. systematize yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and uh, this was the contention from Renfrew and others that Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, was the real home of Proto-Indo-European. But and, and even he, within the last five years, he's backtracked. Right, yeah. That's what I had heard. Um, so I think right now... Uh, the dominant hypothesis is that Proto-Indo-European, so the mm-hmm. pre-language to the Indo-European language families, um, occurred or was focused on the Pontic-Caspian steppe. Would this be uh, contemporaneous with Syntashta, or would this be earlier in the Neolithic? This is earlier. Mm-hmm. So we're talking maybe a thousand years earlier. So really between 3,500 and 3,000 BC, where that's usually when we put Pi, Proto-Indo-European. Now, the interesting thing is there's a lot going on at this time uh, in terms of people moving around and societies right. basically breaking down. You had mentioned this earlier with the Neolithic, Eneolithic yeah. uh, groups in Ukraine and Moldova. So we're talking about Tripilia uh, Tripilia. Kukatani. Yeah. Um, so the the simple fact is that that's a very long lasting development, and we mm-hmm. see various things happening between really about forty eight hundred BC and twenty eight hundred BC, mm-hmm. and right around that time that Pi is supposedly emerging. Yeah, uh, the Tripilia settlements are undergoing fairly massive changes. And these were by any measure for the period, some of the largest settlements on Earth, right? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, they're comparative. Well, at least a couple of them are um, in comparison to, like, Uruk, uh, roughly around the same size. So 450 hectares. 
Jeez. So fairly big. Yeah. And, but they're very different <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, there's a massive open space in most of these settlements. Mm-hmm. So they have basically concentric rings of uh, house structures and structures in general. Um, so we're not sure what those open spaces are. And that's we also see something similar for most of the Sintasha settlements. Really, the same Big open spaces, yeah. Uh, especially if we look at the eponymous Sintashta settlement, uh, Arkaim, which is probably the best known, and uh-huh. a few others. Uh, they're circular, they have concentric rings of houses, and then they have a large open space. And I don't want to suggest cultural diffusion or anything <laughs> yeah, yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, that may have just been you know, a dominant kind of idea. Yeah, for that some sort of shared motif. Yeah. Um, and I guess that kind of goes to monumentality then. That, uh, it's it's a, an absence of a structure rather than a structure, but if it's a open space, centralized yeah. landmark, yep. um, then it would have played a pretty similar role in, in, in some sense, right? Yeah, yeah. I think there's been a few uh, scholars, I know I've talked about it uh, at various conferences, that basically we do have these monumental open spaces. So it may be that we have to change our thinking in terms of monumentality. Yeah. Uh, the settlements themselves are big, if not massive. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, you know these big open spaces seem to have been fairly important. I mean, we can think, you know, and again, I don't want to talk about cultural diffusion, but we see uh, very early on from the Neolithic into the Bronze Age across Europe, across Eurasia, uh, big open spaces seem to be, but confined, you know, meaning delineated, mm-hmm. usually by house structures or um, other types of monuments. Those open spaces are key to what's happening, probably uh, ritual, yeah, you know, or yeah. default. It's a good catch-all. Um, yeah, so, but talking about the Indo-Europe, Proto-Indo-European, um, certainly around 3,500, excuse me, you know, we begin to see um, basically the language groups yeah. emerging. I'm 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 kind of curious as to the sort of artifacts that you pull out of the ground um, at the sites you've worked at, um, just in terms of uh, adding a little color to, you know, my own mental image of these places. I, I guess what are some evocative things that you've pulled out of the ground? Um, uh, well. I, I would say, um, well, one, we find a fair amount of pottery. Mm-hmm. Um, so here at the University of Wyoming, no one really talks about no pottery. No one talks about pottery. <laughs> <laughs> so I often, like, my first talk here uh, was all about pottery. Yeah. <laughs> so that got people thinking in interesting ways about pottery. Um, but for me, that's, I don't know. I can't explain why I get excited by pottery, but... Um, yeah, I, there's just things kind of popping up. You know, there's bronze awls and mm-hmm. talc that's what is, used what in the talc? pottery. So talc is a magnesium silicate. Uh-huh. Uh, it gets processed and used as a temper in the pottery. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also find other bits of mica that look very similar to the talc. And it was interesting because I've been focused on this for almost a decade now. Um, even though I haven't really published that much on it. Not yet. Yeah. That's coming out. Um, but in our excavations at this kind of Middle Bronze Age, Late Bronze Age settlement 
of Chernarechia II in southern Urals in the mm-hmm. Uy River Valley, we've basically um, confirmed my ideas about processing talc. And now we know that it wasn't just talc, it's mica as well. And it's being used in very specific ways. And I don't want to talk about it too much until I publish it. But yeah, certainly pottery is being used in a fashion that almost goes against what we learn about pastoral societies. One, they don't have as much material culture as Mm -hmm. agrarian societies, because if you're moving around, you don't want things to break. Mm -hmm. With especially the Sintashta, but this goes into the late Bronze Age as well, pottery is being repaired with bronze staples, uh, even though once you break that pot, you basically can't use it in terms of yeah it can't um, hold water yeah it can't hold what well, really any liquids yeah um and even if you were let's say collecting wild plants like kinopodium which now we know is a thing as well it wouldn't hold it that mm-hmm. well because the seeds are so small they're going to get through that crack uh so there's some sort of i hate to go back to it again but ritual <laughs> aspect to this that uh there's a lot of investment yeah, you know, a lot of interest in keeping the pots together, uh, and this probably was more symbolic than functional. So that's was kind of my starting point in looking at the pots, mm-hmm. because I remember my colleague uh, Lena Kupernova um, basically taking me through the Sintashta pottery room at the local university in Chelyabinsk. Yeah, and you know we're talking about it. I can see you know some of the Shards are exfoliated, so the uh, paste is visible. Yeah. And I could see all the tempers. Uh, and then a lot of them had those bronze staples. They were holding the pots together. Uh, especially when the pots are found in kind of ritual context, especially burial context. So that really kind of excited my imagination in terms of. Uh, what's going on with these pastoral societies yeah. beyond things like urbanism and all of that. So more kind of on the ground, focused on material culture. But we find a lot of things. You know, um, What we're identifying now is that the Middle Bronze Age and Late Bronze Age settlements uh, are usually sitting directly on top of Mesolithic and Neolithic really? settlements. So we find a lot of That's uh, also Olympic not material. That I would, I would imagine with my 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 view of pastoralists and semi-nomadic and nomadic societies generally. Yeah, um, well, it does suggest uh, a degree of continuity yeah. in the occupation of the landscape. But why are they just focused on those sites? I mean, you're pastoral. You don't have to be focused on, you know, kind of reoccupying those sites or, or continually occupying those sites. So that's, a, a, I think, a big, interesting question that we're going to be looking at and certainly have um, I'm writing grants about it now. Why are people why are people reoccupying yeah, sites exactly. when they from don't the have Mesolithic to. Yeah. up to uh, basically the final Bronze Age? And in fact, most of the villages and towns are sitting on top of those prehistoric settlements. Is there are there any? Um, I mean, you're probably still kind of thinking about this, but are there uh, sort of utilitarian elements to some of these sites? Are they? located on promontories or do they have good access to a water source or um... well um like i said uh, 
they're all close to water sources. And the Uwe River Valley has no shortage of natural springs. Uh, you know, the river is basically flowing out of uh, the Ural Mountain Range. So there's yeah. fresh, cold water available. Um, I can think of at least three springs in the part of the, the river valley. That's my study area. Yeah. Um, there's seasonal drainages that you can see on any Google map. Yeah. Uh, so there's no shortage of water. And certainly, even in the Bronze Age, uh, there doesn't seem to have been any shortage of water. They're located pretty close. They're usually right on the river. Mm-hmm. So they're also... So it's a step, and things do get fairly dry in the summer. Usually by June or July, you know, things are getting a little brownish, uh, unless you're really close to the river. So um, what a lot of the modern herders are doing are going up and then back. Uh, so going beyond the river and uh-huh. then coming back to it yeah. to feed. So to, over, to not over-exploit um, that lush grass that's pretty close to the river. Chances are that's what was going on in the middle, late, final Bronze Age as well. So, yeah, um, the settlements are definitely located in prime areas, but it's Mm -hmm. kind of flat, not as flat as what we think. I think people that haven't been to that part of the steppe, uh, we often characterize it, oh, it must be flat, arid, dry. If you had to pick a state in the U.S. to compare it to... What would you pick? Hmm. Maybe Western Nebraska. Um, Wyoming's pretty close, pretty so, similar environment. Pretty arid, pretty mountainous. Um, yeah, but I mean, where we are, we're a bit farther away from the mountains. Mm-hmm. So you can see them in the distance, but, yeah. you know, whereas here it's like a 40-minute drive to the mountains, unless we're talking about the South Laramie Range. Yeah. Um, there, it's more like a two-hour drive. Okay. So we're yeah, really yeah. in the foothills of the Ural Mountain Range. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's well known for its resources, mineral resources especially. So mining, lots of mining activity going on. And this is kind of the forest step, step border as well. So uh, basically, when we come down from Chelyabinsk into Stepnoya, you're crossing into the steppe. Yeah. So you and, kind of come over a ridge uh, and through the forest, and then you see the steppe open up. And that's kind of an important boundary across the whole of the West Eurasian steppe, right? Yeah. Um, running yep. from Ukraine east is yep. uh, basically as you get far enough north, you start creeping into the forest, right? Right. Is that uh, is that boundary characterized by any amount of friction or or or? very discreet sort of uh, breaks in cultural complexes and things like that? Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the ideas for, like, Sintashta is that they they were migrants Mm -hmm. that came in and settled. uh, And then, basically, they were interacting with uh, local hunter-gatherer groups. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's still a possibility. Is there any genetic work that's been done or...? Um, not that I can talk about. <laughs> so unfortunately, it's not published yet. So we'll find cool. out more uh, later. <laughs> um, and that's kind of the, the way of archaeology. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out more later. Um, people are working on it. Yeah. So people are asking those questions. We're, 
starting to look at the material, you know, uh, skeletal material and you yeah. know, genetic material. Um, so yeah, that's definitely a possibility because in the fourth step, there are distinct cultural groups, you know, along the lines of culture history. Uh, and we think that probably like the Sintashta and the later groups, the, uh, Alakul and Fedorovo and, um, are still interacting with these groups, if not intermarrying, because of course, right. Uh, you have to keep your gene pool fairly wide and deep. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, this is one of David Anthony's kind of burgeoning interests is thinking more along the lines of gene pools and marriage alliances. How do you keep yourself genetically fit in mm -hmm. terms of uh, communities? And that's something that, you know, should be uh, testable genetically. If I'm in a, a village on the steppe in this period, um, let's say there's 400 or 600 people, how far do I have to go to get to the next settlement of that scale? So um, it, the distances are varied. So if we're in Stepnoia, Middle Bronze Age, Sintasha period, Stepnoia, uh, the next settlement, contemporary settlement, is Chernorechia III. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's 20 kilometers away. Oh, that's not terrible. But... It's a, it's a walk, <laughs> but... <laughs> uh, Chernorechia III and Stepnoia are the northernmost Sintasha settlements. You basically have to go 70 or 80 kilometers to the south to reach the next one. Really? Yeah. So, I guess is there is there greater evidence of mineral of, of mining and uh, resource extraction of any kind? Or we don't really know that uh -huh. yet, because even though that's been kind of a persistent question over the last thirty years, uh, without doing survey, you can't really answer those questions. Yeah. Um, certainly, in the um, like Evgeny Chernik has proposed, you know, different metallurgical provinces, uh, but really this Tasha all fall under one, so we don't know exactly what's happening between the settlements. Mm -hmm. um, certainly Stepnoia seems more focused on production than Chernorechia, but... Production of... Metal. Okay, yeah. But again, that's based on very limited information, mm -hmm. and we're just finding out more now. Certainly our... Uh, or I should say my project's excavations in 2019, um, we just didn't find much related to metal production. Uh, we certainly found a lot about pottery production, um, bone and antler tool production, lithics, you know, but again, going mostly back to the Mesolithic and Neolithic, and a lot of animal bone. You know, we... Not a lot telling us about metal production. So we did find slag, you know, a decent amount. Yeah. Uh, not as much as what I would have expected if this site, if this late Bronze Age, kind of middle Bronze Age, but primarily late Bronze Age site was being used for intensive craft production focused on metallurgy. At what point on the step do we see a transition from the, uh, I guess, more small-scale production of arsenical bronze to the, the, the safer and more cost-effective production of bronze as an alloy of uh, 
copper and tin. Um, yeah, certainly. I think by um, the Middle Bronze Age, Sintashta period, so around yeah. 2100 BC, what we're seeing is uh, fairly low levels of bronze production uh, in terms of smeltings per year. Yeah. Um, so Brian Hanks and his colleague uh, Roger Dunin have, you know, we've published on this. Um, as far as the transition from arsenic to tin, uh, I would say the safest thing is to say it's happening in the late Bronze Age, uh, probably by the end of the Middle Bronze Age, Tintasha period, so around mm -hmm. 1800 BC. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not familiar enough with all of the settlements in what we often refer to as yeah. Sintashta land to know exactly when they're making that transition. The, you know, while tin was certainly much safer, um, the problem is it generally has to be imported. Mm -hmm. So there aren't a lot of tin sources across the steppe or in Europe or even in the Middle East or Near East. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, there's there are open questions about like bronze production, even copper production in terms mm -hmm. of producing copper ingots that may have been traded to different, you know, kind of state level societies or kingdoms uh, to the south and east and west. Um, and that's like Christian Christensen and David Anthony have suggested repeatedly that, you know, this must have been happening in the Middle Bronze Age in Tashta, uh, that they were focused on intensive bronze production or copper production. Um, but really, the only solid evidence that we have of that is during the late Bronze Age. Mm -hmm. So there's just expectations that it goes back further. Yeah, than we have yet found. Yeah, but we haven't found any evidence to suggest that. What I've said, kind of in my talks and whatever, that the safest thing to assume is that this is happening in the late Bronze Age, especially with the breakdown of Sintashta communities. Uh, we also see the dispersion of chariot technologies. So a lot of these societies are coming into contact with one another. When you say the breakdown of Sintashta communities, what do you mean? A lot of the Sintashta period communities, so these Middle Bronze Age communities, break down, uh, meaning they, the communities break down. So we see population dispersal uh, to a certain extent. Um, around 1800, really anywhere between 1900 and 1700 BC. Uh, some of these sites are reoccupied during the late Bronze Age, mm -hmm. uh, but there's not a lot of radiocarbon dating, so we don't know uh, specific timing of this, but certainly we see um, overall in the late Bronze Age, populations are scattering across the landscape. Some are relocating settlements. Hmm. Is there increased evidence for violence and uh, fortifications and things around that time? No. Nope. Um, In fact, the late Bronze Age is pretty much characterized by the absence really? of fortifications. Not complete absence, because you see it in a few examples. But like in the Uwe River Valley, we see these late Bronze Age settlements pop up. Um, and for the first time, we also see kind of center hinterland dynamics coming up in the late Bronze Age. Uh, so, you know, in some cases, what could be much larger settlements happening in the late Bronze Age. Uh, and this has been kind of an underexplored uh, possibility for the steppe late Bronze Age. 
because we often think about population dispersal, smaller communities, all of that, but that's certainly not what we're seeing in southern Urals. What do you most want to know going forward? Like, what are your plans in the next few years? Uh, well, I think there's, you know, and I share this interest with uh, Brian Hanks about what's going on metallurgically. Yeah. Uh, and what's the transition from the Sintasha period into the late Bronze Age, so Lockwell uh, groups. Um, but also, I mean, I'm really focused on those damn ceramics. <laughs> um, I just, I, I think there's so many things really interesting about pastoralists using pottery, producing and using pottery. Uh, and I think that's kind of, you know, if not a reflection, definitely related to how they saw themselves. Does that tie in too to this sort of surprising degree of reuse of sites? If, if, if I make a bunch of pottery and I know I'm never coming back to the place where I made them and now I have to carry all the pottery, it seems like I would be discouraged from making it. Whereas if I know I'm coming back next season or a few seasons down the road and it might still be there when I get back, um, would, is that a possibility? That, yeah, um, definitely. I think that there's, uh, you know, when we think of social change, we often think about uh, kind of complete social change. You know, complete transformation. Mm -hmm. But we know, you know, ethnographically uh, that that's not really how social change works, that there's aspects of change and continuity happening. Mm -hmm. uh, so one of the things that I think is the most interesting and um, something that sets me apart from my colleagues, especially here yeah. <laughs> at Wyoming, is thinking about social memory, but also thinking about avoidance and forgetting you know, it seems like there were different reactions to uh, basically breakdown and relocation or um, basically reoccupying these sites in terms of, um, in some examples or some cases, we see that the late Bronze Age communities are avoiding the Sintashta period settlements. Really? Yeah. But in other cases, they're reoccupying them. Um and one of the things that I'm looking at, pun intended, is visibility <laughs> of uh, the late Bronze Age settlements in terms of uh, where the Middle Bronze Age and Tashta period settlements are located. So I've been working on this since I was a postdoc in Denmark, uh, basically through GIS. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there's some interesting things coming out. Well Thanks for taking the time, Jim. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you for listening to this episode of The Tell. Until next time. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed the podcast and you want to help me talk to more people in more places, please consider donating. You can do so on my Patreon as a recurring donor, as well as on my website if you'd rather do a one-time donation. The links are patreon.com slash Sebastian Weatherby and www.sebastianweatherby.com. Show notes are also available on my website where you can find citations and comments and other relevant information about the things we talked about today. Thanks again for listening.